You know, I'm sure a lot of the cycling businesses, the owner is a, a cycle instructor, and they were successful, and they wanted to open up their own store. And so if a buyer sees the owner as having this following, and he or she is teaching a lot of classes, and you know these people followed him or her from the health club to this studio, then they're going to go, wow, I can't replace this owner. I can't do what he does. But if the owner is more of a manager, more of a marketer, and the buyer can see themselves doing those skills, then that's going to be a lot better. Hi, this is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Here we are, fall of 2016, and the, I guess I would describe it as meteoric rise of indoor cycling studios around not only the United States, but across the world has been just awesome to watch. It is not beyond the realm of reason, though, to think that not all of them are going to be successful, or people's plans may change. Um, you have personal situation or something, you've started a studio, and for some reason or another, you can't continue it. What are your options then? Obviously, you could close. That's not something that's typically something that people want to do. You've built up a business, a clientele, so then there's always the potential to sell it. But what do you do? Who do you talk to? You know, what's prompted all of this is I've been getting a couple, and I just posted one yesterday on IndoorCycleInstructor.com about a studio owner in uh, Merrittville, I think is the right, uh, Georgia, who asked that I promote the fact that she has a studio for sale. And there was another one that predated it. I got a notification from a real estate uh, person, and I posted that. While this is all happening, I'm thinking, you know what, I... I don't have, a, you know, I've sold a lot of things over my life, but I've never sold a business. So I started doing some research to try to find someone who is experienced in, you know, the process of selling a business and more specifically, someone who's has an understanding of selling a fitness related business. Through my search, I ended up with a gentleman named Shane Massey. And after chatting with a couple of his prior customers and getting their glowing reviews of him, I decided to invite him to be on the podcast and to try to bring some context to all this. He explained that there are very common mistakes that he sees fitness business owners making, and we distilled those down to what we call the avoid these five mistakes when selling your fitness business. So uh, let me introduce you to Shane Massey. Welcome, Shane. Hi. Good morning, John. Good to be with you all. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you uh, sitting there quietly through my long introduction. Where am I reaching you? Where do you live? I'm in uh, Grapevine, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Suburb of Dallas. All right. And it's still hot there, I imagine? Oh, it's in the 80s now. It's nice fall weather. What is your experience in fitness and the fitness industry? Well, I uh, 
started off um, as a personal trainer while I was in college and back in 1988. And uh, when I graduated college, I uh, got into the health club management business. And uh, for the last 25 years, I've kind of been a personal trainer, a general manager, a fitness director, a club owner. Uh, I also was a territory manager for uh, Cybex and Technogym and Precore selling fitness equipment. So I've kind of been in the industry and worked my way up and done anything and everything there is to do uh, on both sides of the fence. Got it. Okay, so how did you get into the the business brokering, I guess is what you call it, right? Well, I owned my own health club, and I needed to sell it. So I hired a broker, and I saw what he did, and I said, oh, this is an interesting uh, field. And uh, so I got into business brokering, and this was in 2006 and 2007, and I worked for a company, and we sold all types of businesses, restaurants, daycares, you name it, we'd sell anything. Primarily small businesses, I guess. Right, right. They were you know, anywhere from you know, 100000 in revenue to $4 million, uh, in gross revenue range. So I had a, a friend that contacted me about uh, selling his club. And this was before I got into the business brokering uh, industry. Long story short, I found a buyer for him and, and made a big commission. So that experience... That and this was been nice, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was back when I was selling fitness equipment. That experience combined with me hiring a broker to sell my own club kind of pushed me into becoming a, a business broker myself. That was right before the big 2008 you know, economic crash. And once that happened, nobody uh, was getting loans to buy businesses. So... I went full force back into the fitness industry, just kind of waited until it was good timing to get back into the industry. Now, when I got back into it, I wanted to specialize in a niche, and all my experience is in the health club industry, so I chose to be a specialist in the fitness club business brokering niche. Are there limitations based on the fact that you're in Texas, and for example, maybe you have somebody contact you from... Uh, I don't know, Boston, that has a cycling studio for sale. Does there, there are limitations based on your geographic distance apart? No, there really isn't, John. In today's world with um, what we're doing, Skype, you know, cell phones and text and emails, I'm a, a nationwide business broker, so uh, very rarely do I get a, a local club to represent. All my clients are scattered throughout the United States. What I find is that once you find a prospect, they can tour the business and meet with the owners without me being present. And there's uh, really no problems in doing it that way. I think it's going to be illustrative to someone who's considering selling their business that we go through our list of the five mistakes that uh, you tend to see frequently. The first one that you gave me really surprised me, uh, but then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what, this, <laughs> this really makes a lot of sense. The first mistake to avoid is you don't have a legitimate reason for selling the business. So explain what that is and kind of how it affects the sale. Reason for selling is very important because that is really one of the first questions any prospect is going to ask, well, why do they want to sell this business? Well, I'm burnt out. 
you know, might raise a red flag. Well, if this guy, you know, is burnt out, then what's so bad about this business? I'm losing money. You know, that's really not something that's going to appeal to a buyer. I think retirement and divorce are good ones that people can understand. Of course, you never want to lie about this. Um, if it's not making money and you do want to sell, you just you can still sell. You just make it an asset sale. And you work on the good excuses of why it's not making a profit. And hopefully a, a new buyer can see that he has the skills and the talent to, to turn it around. You know, I see what you're saying, an asset sale, because that was essentially what this uh, woman that I posted, you know, she's selling what she described as a studio in a box that you could pick up and move to your location. So you've got the bikes and the stereo and you've got a website that's in place. You just need to change the geographical information. And so, but so that's essentially what you're describing as an asset sale, correct? Right. Business buyers, they're really buying cash flow. Sometimes, you know, they're looking to buy themselves a job that provide a good living. And um, they really don't uh, want to buy businesses that are losing money or are barely breaking even. You know, they want uh, to see profit, uh, especially lenders as well. So, you know, if you have a business that is on a downward trend and not profitable, it's going to be a hard business to sell. Because I guess that's always the million-dollar question is that, well, wait, why are you selling it? If you're making money, why <laughs> why don't you just keep it? <laughs> right. And, you know, and a lot of times, hey, business buyers, I mean, business owners, uh, they've, you know, they're, they want to move on to a new venture. And that could be a legitimate reason for selling. You know, we have, uh, you know, people that like to be entrepreneurs. They'll open up a business. You know, they'll get bored with it or they'll have a, a bigger, better adventure that they want to take part of. And that's all legitimate reason for selling. You just want to really be aware that, hey, that's the first question a prospect is going to ask. ask. So you really want to have a good answer. Got it. Is that something that you typically consult with someone on when you're engaged by them? Oh, sure. You bet. We, you know, nail down the narrative of uh, why you're selling and, um, you know, a good explanation behind it. All right. Uh, Number two, and this kind of ties into what you (laughs) were talking about earlier, is that your business valuation or the selling price of what you're selling is wrong. How would you kind of define what you're saying here businesses are evaluated based on what's called seller's discretionary earnings or net owner benefit you know a lot of um, inexperienced sellers especially if it's not making money then they want to try to get what they put into it well it cost me $150,000 to open this business I want to get that back that's not a legitimate way to evaluate and price your business businesses are evaluated based on a multiple of the seller's discretionary earnings. And there's a tiered system. For example, if your business is uh, profiting zero to $50,000, then it's a one-time multiple. If it's profiting fifty dollars to $100,000, then it's a two-time multiple. So if your business is profiting $50,000 a year, most likely you can price it and sell it for between one and two time multiple. So upside potential is greater the more profit you're making. Exactly. And that tiered system just keeps going up based on your 
you know, your bottom line SDE, seller's discretionary earnings number. You know, if it's profiting 100 to 250,000, then it's a three-time multiple. The higher the the profit is, the the greater the confidence someone's going to have. So that's why you can demand that higher multiple. Exactly, exactly. And what you want, you know, a business broker can help you figure out, or your accountant can maybe help you figure this out too, is how you arrive at your seller's discretionary earnings. So you're going to basically take your EBITDA, your earnings of the business before expensing your interest, income, taxes, depreciation expense, and amortization expense. So you take, take your profit off your tax return. And then you're going to add back in the interest, depreciation, amortization, owner salary, owner perks, and expenses that uh, an owner runs through the business that a, no, a new owner would not incur. Plus, you can also add back any non-reoccurring expenses. Maybe you bought five uh, high-definition television screens last year, and a new owner is obviously not going to incur that expense on a year-to-year basis. So that's a expense you can add back in as part of your seller's discretionary earnings. Sounds confusing at some level. It's really not that hard. It's not. Okay. Well, it sounded confusing to me, so hopefully if you understand, <laughs> I guess that's all that matters. <laughs> all right. Number three, and this was another thing that kind of surprised me, and then again, as I thought about it, I said, well, this makes sense, is that, that they didn't plan for the sale. I guess we could put the word properly in there. Well, just like if you're going to sell your house, you know, you're going to fix it up. You're going to do some painting, maybe, you know, replace the carpet, make sure it has good curb appeal. Um, same thing with the business. You want to really um, make the facility look as best it can. You want to, you know, uh, fix any broken equipment so you don't have out-of-order signs. You want to really make sure that your books, your record-keeping is easy to understand and accurate. That's raises a huge red flag when the financials are hard to understand uh, and not clean. Uh, you want to, you know, try to work on any staffing issues that you need to fix, and you definitely need to pay attention to your social media. You know, with Welp, uh, I mean <laughs> Yelp, <laughs> Yelp, and the yeah. <laughs> and the other. Um, Websites where people can review your business, I mean, if you have a, a bunch of bad reviews out there, that's going to hurt you because that's one of the things, the first things uh, a buyer is going to look at is, well, what kind of business reviews does this company have? But you want to look at your website, make sure your website looks good, you know, and, it, and it's updated. So planning for the sale is, is important, just like you, you have a house and you fix it up to put it on the market. You want to fix up your business. Number four, they ignored potential deal killers. What are the deal killers you're referring to? Well, here's the deal killers. Losing money. Trending down. Owner is the business. That, and that's something I want to talk about. But keep going. But we'll okay. go back to that because I think that may be the case for a lot of these indoor cycling studios. Bad bookkeeping, the landlord and the lease, huge one. Uh, negative impact from new competition in the marketplace, and it's overpriced. Talk to me about owner is the business. 
You know, I'm sure a lot of the cycling businesses, the owner is a, a cycle instructor, and they were successful, and they wanted to open up their own store. And so if a buyer sees the owner as having this following, and he or she is teaching a lot of classes, and you know these people followed him or her from the health club to this studio, then they're going to go, wow, I can't replace this owner. I can't do what he does. But if the owner is more of a manager, more of a marketer, and the buyer can see themselves doing those skills, then that's going to be a lot better. Would there be an option for, say, I'm going to buy your business, but you're this rock star instructor that everybody loves, where you know, I buy the business, but then I retain you for some period of time uh, so that it's not an abrupt absence of you? That's a great point, John, because I'm sure a lot of times in cycling studios, you might even be able to keep the owner as a permanent instructor. Maybe they really like being an instructor and they found out through trying to own and operate this business, hey, that's not, not their cup of tea. You know, that's a great point. I've heard that multiple times. They were in love with the idea of, of being a business owner, not so much when the realities of being a business owner. Oh, I'll tell you, when I had my health club, I was the janitor. You know, <laughs> right. I didn't want to pay anybody to clean my club, so I cleaned it. You know, and I was the accountant, and I was the front desk receptionist, and I was the, you know, had to do payroll and all this stuff that doesn't involve health and fitness and training and helping people reach their goals. So it's it's really an eye opener when you're running a small business and you have to wear all the hats of a business owner, and it leaves less time for what you really, really enjoy. So you could have those situations where, hey. I don't want to own the business anymore. If you need me to stay on as an instructor, I'll stay on. Typically, in any business that is sold, there is a training period uh, built into the purchase price. And typically, it's four weeks of uh, consultation uh, from the owner. Uh, It could be spelled out in detail, whether it's uh, on-site, in-person, via email, or phone calls. The transition from one owner to the next is is a big part of uh, you know setting the price one and closing the deal. Yeah, because these are studios, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for a yoga studio or Pilates or indoor cycling, is that those that they're doing well they have developed a, a sense of community within them. And, you know, between the owner and the, the instructor employees and the, the customers. And, and that transition to me uh, sounds like the, the crucial thing to make certain that it goes well mm-hmm. when, when there is a transference of ownership. Studio cycling uh, businesses are a little bit close. Uh, they're close to uh, personal training studios, which since that's more of a one-on-one, you know, you build a clientele and they're really loyal to you. Mm-hmm. It's hard for a lot of business owners to uh, feel like they can step in and, and uh, take over that trainer's spot because all those clients are loyal to that individual trainer. You want to keep that in mind when you're managing your business. You know, if you're the best instructor, that's great, but make sure you have other great instructors to where a potential buyer can say, okay, I can just, you know, add Sally to the classes that the owner is teaching currently and it's not going to be a problem. 
it strikes me that someone listening to this, and I'm going to guess that just about every studio owner is going to listen to it, <laughs> just to hear what you had to say. For someone who maybe is contemplating selling, maybe a year from now, you know, that might be a good strategy to, you know, to step back and evaluate, am I the business? And if that's the case, take steps to step back slowly and elevate your other instructors. Would that, would that be a wise thing? You bet. And that's um, one reason we haven't really talked about this, but I recommend that you, you get a broker because the owner needs to focus on the business and improving the business. You, know, you need to be working on uh, managing the business and marketing the business. If you list it, the revenue doesn't go down. It stays the same or goes up. And a lot of time when, you know, it takes a lot of time to, to list and market and sell a business. And uh, if you try to sell it yourself, then you have to deal with all these uh, buyer prospects and it takes away from your time and energy of trying to improve the business. Jane, you're jumping ahead of me. That's no. I'm five. sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. They didn't, and the number five is that they didn't seek professional advice. And that's going to help you with a lot of these deal killers. Uh, for example, the... The bookkeeping, you know, one of the first things we do is look at your P&Ls and your tax returns in order to do a a valuation or a broker's opinion of value. And if we can't understand your financials and we have a hard time, you know, figuring things out, then a layperson is going to have even a harder time. So that's one of the first things we do in valuating the business is look at the bookkeeping, the accounting, the financials, and see, make sure everything's in order and easy to understand. The other deal killer uh, is the landlord and the lease. So you could have list your business for sale and have a great buyer, and y'all agree and get a deal done, and then the landlord kills the deal because he doesn't want to accept a new tenant. You know, a lot of leases will will have a, an assignment clause or something to the effect that you can you can transfer the lease, but the landlord has to approve it. So instead of waiting until you know you sell it and get the deal done, and then the landlord kills it, you want to take care of this potential deal killer at the get go. Read your lease first and understand uh, what it says. And then approach your landlord and say, hey, I, I might um, be selling my business in the future. Uh, let's talk about the lease. And just see where they stand, and you'll find out if they're going to be easy to work with for a new tenant or hard to work with. And you can move forward appropriately. Got it. Are those conversations that, uh, that work better with a third party? You know, like your business broker or that they have them one-on-one, you know, the owner and the landlord? Yeah, typically the owner and the landlord uh, discuss that. But if you have a bad relationship with your landlord, probably your broker would be a better option to approach them. And then you also list that, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, as far as having a competent attorney to help review things. Yeah, you know, on small businesses, uh, a lot of times can really get away with very little uh, CPA and attorney help, but you don't want to totally ignore it. You know, there's certain tax consequences based on purchase price allocation uh, as far as whether it's a stock sale or asset sale. And you want to, you know, talk to your accountant about what your tax consequences are if you do sell your business. 
so you don't you don't go into that blind. And an attorney, you can you know use for the closing documents and do the UCC search to make sure there's no debts or liabilities on the company that that you're not aware of. Okay. Then you also list financing options. Yeah, if you have a good, uh, profitable business, one of the first things I do in the listing process after the valuation uh, is kind of pre-qualify the business for financing. So I have several um, SBA lenders that I work with. So I'll send the financials to them, and we will pre-qualify the business you know, based on a 25% or 20% down payment. Oh, just to make sure that we're we're clear here, that you're qualifying the business to be financeable, contrasted with qualifying the buyer. Exactly. So in in business listings, a lot of times you could put pre-qualified for SBA loan. So that means that, you know, an SBA lender has looked at the financials and the history of this business, and based on the buyer having... Uh, good credit, uh, the appropriate down payment, and some kind of experience in the industry that qualifies them to be a, a safe bet for this loan, then they'll say, yeah, we'll do this loan. If you have a good ongoing business that's profitable, of course, they want to see three years of history. That's one of the, you know, the best things you can do is get it pre-qualified. Uh, before you even take it to market. Well, I would have to believe that that could add to your selling price as well. Oh, sure. You bet. You bet. You know, there's lots of, lots of ways to skin a cat when buying a business. Uh, on a small business like that, this, I mean, you might have a business that will sell for $100,000. You could do, you know, 50% down and 50% seller financing. So they're going to pay you, the business owner, $50,000, and you're going to work out some kind of seller carryback deal. Maybe they're going to pay you the other 50000 over a two-year period with you know 6% interest. So that's another thing that you, the, the business owner and the broker, need to talk about and really delve into the different scenarios that the buyer will accept on the terms. Got it. In advance of getting an offer from somebody, I would Sure, sure. So, so you know in a, ahead of time, okay, well, I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm not going to do Q, R, and S. Right, and it saves you a lot of time, too, if you're willing to do seller financing where a, uh, a buyer doesn't have to go through the SBA and, and get a loan. That's a you know can be a lengthy process, and especially on a small business you know, where you're talking maybe under $300,000, if the seller is really uh, open to doing seller financing, that's very appealing to buyers. A lot of times the lender, if you do go, go through the SBA lender, they will require a 10% seller carryback at least as well. What does that mean? Well, let's say you have a, a cycle studio for $300,000. You have a really good buyer, good credit, qualifies, has the down money and everything, and he doesn't really want uh, a a seller carryback, but the bank requires it in order to uh, do the loan because they want the seller to have some skin in the game as well. So they'll take his, you know, 20% down, and they'll ask the seller to do 10% seller carryback. So they'll ask the seller to finance $30,000 over 
maybe a two or three year period in conjunction with the 20% down from the buyer. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. So, so you're, so you're, so I'm the buyer. I'm paying two people then, meaning I'm paying my, the SBA lender and I'm also making payments to the owner. Is that exactly right? Exactly. Got it. Okay. Again, it's, it's, uh, I'm glad I got you on, Shane, because <laughs> some of this is very confusing, and I want to make certain that, um, that we're communicating it as accurately as we can. Boy, this has been wonderful, and I appreciate your time. If you ha- need additional information, go to indoorcycleinstructor.com forward slash sell my business. Uh, there'll be a way for you to request additional information, get connected with Shane, and then uh, hopefully find a way to uh, transition out of your business uh, in a, uh, and hopefully in a way that is profitable to you. So, Shane, Massey, again, I appreciate your time and help. Thank you. You're very welcome. Great to be with you this morning, John. 